Hello and welcome back to a new Making the Startup podcast. Today with Joseph Gatzak, ex-group CFO of Get Your Guide, the famous city guide internet platform for whom he raised $500 million in 2019 from SoftBank and other VC firms. As well, he worked for PayPal, Battlesman, Amazon's Audible, etc., etc. We'll be talking about how to successfully raise money for your startup, bringing in venture capital in the hundreds of millions of dollars. As well, he will share his view and status on the outlook of Corona pandemic and how he sees Google Amazon and other major platforms evolve with that effect. And as well, he will share a bit of a teaser here, his cool news since he's just sealed a contract in another startup as CFO. Here we go. Welcome to the podcast, Making the Startup with Patrick Zetzel. Hello, Joseph. Welcome to the podcast. Great to have you here. As I just mentioned, you accomplished big financing rounds for great startups like Get Your Guide and you're in between two jobs, but let's start from the beginning. We know each other for ages by now from a startup from the year 2000. Was that your first career step or where did you start your business life? Hi, Patrick. Pleasure, pleasure to have a conversation with you today. <laughs> Absolutely right. So, so 1999, I started with a venture capital firm where venture capital was a completely new concept in Germany and BMP AG went public at the time. So at, at that point in time, I mean, <laughs> you pitched the idea of Yell Out to BMP. Um, one of the uh, partners there um, changed size and joined your startup. And then soon after, he made the offer to me to run the B2B part of the platform. Uh, that's the time when I basically went to, to Yell Out, crazy times. So Yellowout was the first startup after your BMP job. Tell us a bit about Yellowout and maybe why you switched from the VC side to the to the startup side. So in 1999, where the economy was, I mean, heated up and everyone uh, was even more keen to join startup and, and build startups um, than in these days. Um, it was very clear at the time when I joined a BMP that sooner or later I'm going to jump into one startup and six months was a bit earlier than I thought. I really like the team, the people that I work with. So you actually had like an entrepreneur in residence position at the time where there was no entrepreneur in residence positions yet. Mm, yeah, so it wasn't wasn't really um, entrepreneur in residence. I was a full investment person there. Nevertheless, the concept of venture capital and what a investment associate does was pretty new. <laughs> so also BMP was uh, at that point in time um, just exploring and discovering the space. And they were switching between uh, early startups, a support function, etc. And they were, they were also finding their, their business model on their own as it was a one part consultancy and on the other part an investment company um, and uh, yeah that was an interesting concept okay so then and I, I to be honest i can't remember exactly was it 1999 or 2000 when we pitched with bmp the internet marketplace yellow did uh, have three other investment company venture capital companies but from that you got the connection to to yellow which was your first startup then Exactly. And Yellowout was a service marketplace. My Hammer is one uh, in, in Germany, basically a platform like eBay or services where you could put your request online and service providers then have the ability to request for quote or in any means answer to to the request. So that was 2000, 2001, the internet after the boom phase came the bust. And the company Yellowout was busted as well, as I remember correctly. What did you do afterwards? <laughs> yeah. Um, so at the time, I, I figured out for, for me personally that I really like uh, working quantitatively, um, having an overview over the uh, company. Um, uh, we had a lot of feedback amongst peers and with others. Um, and I realized, hey, finance uh, might be a better fit for me than a product or any other position. So I went to Cuttlesman to learn 
finance from the scratch uh, and become operational CFO. This is where I joined the Bertelsmann Book Club business, which was at that time more than 3 million yeah, customers there. Then. Was it the year 2002? Uh, I think 2001 or 2002, yes. Okay, and that was more or less like the Bertelsmann's answer to Amazon or what was it? Uh, so the Bertelsmann Book Club unfortunately doesn't exist. It was a subscription business for books. So given the Deutsche Buchpreisbindung, um, uh, the price, book price legislation in Germany, um, you cannot buy any books for a cheaper price other than when you have a book subscription. And that was the big business of Bertelsmann offering bestseller books for a cheaper price, which is if you are a heavy reader, it basically paid off to you. Um, and it was a interesting business in itself, although from a customer perspective, and there was a lot of history about how sales was done at, at the book club business, <laughs> and customers were increasingly unsatisfied with the aggressive sales and, and the selection of books and that they uh, were forced to buy regularly books. Um, and the overall image and perception of customers were not good for, unfortunately, for the uh, book club business. This is why it declined from 3 million to less than a million. And then I think it's still operating potentially, but it's going to shut down. And it's very clear that this business is going to be discontinued. Okay. So you actually, your first business step was a venture capital company. Then you came to your startup and a third step was corporation. How was that culture-wise working for Bertelsmann? <laughs> um, so at the time when I joined Bertelsmann, it was I'm more the startup spirit. Um, uh, the idea was to break up the big general interest book club into several niche book clubs and, and basically start smaller niche book club businesses. Um, and I started there as a uh, financial planning person to support those uh, new business book clubs, which was uh, fun. Also, the team on, on the other side and the product people there um, were highly engaged. It felt a bit like a startup in a, in a bigger corporation. A lot of ideas and, and um, new innovation happened uh, during that time. Um, but the overall I mean, business suffered and then priorities were different. It was not expansion, but more cost saving, making sure that the general interest book club is um, healthy and growing. This is where, why over time all of these niche uh, book club businesses were integrated into the um, general interest club. And at a later point in time, they basically... Um, uh, became part of the general interest club. So until which year did you stay uh, with Bertelsmann then? So I stayed for five years. During that time also there were a couple of CEO changes and changes in strategy, which is I think I experienced four CEOs over the course of time, which is uh, critical if you think about how much time it takes to really change uh, strategy and cause of a bigger corporation, it, it was uh, ludicrous to, I mean, change and exchange strategy and CEOs uh, in that short period of time, which I think also is part of why the book club businesses failed over that period. So then after your uh, experiences with Bartelsmann, you came back to a, like a grown-up startup uh, to PayPal. How was it working for PayPal and what year did you join the company? Uh, so at the time when I um, switched from Bertelsmann to PayPal, PayPal was basically non-existent. It was a small subsidiary in the German office. Only seven people worked. I was the first continental European finance person. And PayPal was a product that was for free in Germany uh, and it had no traction on eBay. 
uh, it was less than 1% of eBay transactions that were transacted with, with PayPal back at the time. And it was really a question whether that product has a market fit or not. Was it an eBay daughter already? So PayPal was acquired by eBay before I joined, correct? And some people might not remember that eBay was the big uh, almost monopolist in e-commerce back at the time. 60% of German e-commerce was transacted over eBay. It was acquiring companies like Skype on the trajectory to become maybe what, what Google or Amazon is in these days. Uh, and it was really big. So, so then they acquired PayPal. I remember that. And uh, in Germany, PayPal was founded in which year? Um, I think it was launched maybe a year earlier than that. So 2003 or 2004, uh, Malte Feller was the first person there um, who, who launched uh, PayPal. And it were uh, three, four key people back at the time. I remember Arnulf Käse, who became uh, later the German CEO. He basically started with me at the same day, whereas he, I had a desk and he didn't. And he had to build his desk basically on his first day, which was a, also testimony on, on the stage of the company. It felt a bit like a startup where you start and you have to build your, your table on yourself. Amazon for some time did that with, with people, showing them that there is always a day one and it's not corporate, but it is a, a, a true company where you need to take the initiative and, and uh, need to take care also for uh, more than just uh, doing your job. And as we remember, eBay more or less bought some years beforehand the company Alando that was founded by the Zamba brothers in 1998, I think, and one year later sold to eBay in 99. So it was really early, early days of eBay, Germany and Europe as well. And then PayPal uh, got attached to this. So how, how did the company grow then over the years in Germany or in Europe? The first, first month um, <laughs> was discussion about introducing prices. How does uh, charging for a service will impact trajectory and whether PayPal in Germany has a product market fit or not. Whereas over the time, then uh, six months later, after the introduction of prices and growth was rather rapidly um, accelerating uh, than, than coming to an uh, end. Um, and that was really one of the craziest growth that I have seen. There were uh, growth rates week over week in the range of 100%. So it was really exploding back at the time. And you could see that more and more sellers were offering PayPal as a service, whereas um, buyers were also using that service. Um, and it was just taking off. Was it the same product like in the US? Uh, no. So the biggest difference is that uh, back at the time, even more, eBay was working on, on uh, wire transfer um, for Abüberweisung. So people needed to wire the money. No one in Germany had credit cards. And PayPal's product was based on usage of credit cards. So what PayPal needed to do was offering Lastschrift or Überweisung as a second product. And only with the introduction of offering better connection to the German credit card network and offering ELV, Lastschrift, only that changed the perception also of consumers because otherwise it felt like having a no value add to consumers only with a more seamless integration of payment uh, that became what we mean how we use paypal nowadays quite interesting since paypal was really successful in the us and for germany at least i don't know in other countries in europe but i think it was yeah. similar they actually needed to invent entirely new products because the the market fit of the us and the need was different than the one in in europe and germany so that's quite 
quite a success because a company and a startup could easily fail when having you know one way to, to win, one way of success in, in your country, in your home country, then you internationalize and think this is the product that you that the whole world needs. Yeah. And it, other countries all of a sudden are totally different. Exactly. And and Patrick, you will know, I mean, American uh, company to explain that in Germany banking and consumer financing works different than in the US, that the product has a not fit, that you need to invest in certain uh, types of the product, there's one battle to make. And then on the other hand, for any bigger US-based company, it's a question of priority. Do you invest into a market like Germany um, to build a product with all of the tech and, and uh, product resources, or do you work for a country like the US where you have a homogeneous landscape, you know the market, people sit close by, versus there is always a uh, lost in time zones and, and translation. So I think any, uh, coming to a, to a bigger point, any European subsidiary of a US company will have that sort of similar discussions, I assume, with the headquarter. To what extent localization is necessary also the other way around german companies going abroad to what extent can you afford spending product and, and tech resources on different country versus um developing your core product well at the end this fragmentation of europe and the complexity of europe was the basis for the whole copycat industry of the internet days you know between 2000 and 2010 i would guess that was the basis for the zambas to to have that success stories with copycats absolutely so i would so copycat or to really understand the complexity of you the european landscape and to scale up one idea across many countries, I think they did that really good. Whereas, unfortunately, they have sold maybe too many times um, too early to US companies or the ideas were not based sustainably and company were just uh, blown up, uh, but without any fundamental business uh, behind it and then went bust or, or diminished over time. Like Groupon or other examples, City Deal. Uh, Groupon or there was an Airbnb clone. I do not recall the Wimdu, I think. And there was another um, uh, home rental clone also by the Zambas. Yeah, and there were a couple of them. Okay, so after after that success story and the high growth uh, story of PayPal in Germany that you joined, uh, you switched sides to Amazon again to Audible. Amazon bought Audible beforehand or after you joined Audible? Um, so they bought Audible Inc., the U.S. company before, and basically uh, during the time of me signing and starting, um, also the German subsidiary was bought by Audible Inc. So and then became a subsidiary of uh, Amazon Inc. And part of the job there as a finance director and CFO was to integrate basically all of the accounting and finance and also to some extent HR uh, functions into the Amazon infrastructure and culture, which was super interesting looking at eBay and looking at Amazon, where you back at the time they were fighting about um, to become number one in Germany, and you would thought two companies, same industry, same tech affinity. So companies you you would think from the outside are very similar, but from the inside completely different. A culture-wise leadership wise the almost the opposite so explain what was what was different with amazon then where where ebay i think had a great and strong culture one of the key themes for example was um trust each other um and look at the big picture or i think some somewhat differently phrased maybe 
but it was much more look at the big uh, picture, trust each other. Whereas at Amazon, at the, cult, the culture back then, one of the leadership principle was uh, there is no level of detail below a director. And you can imagine, whereas at eBay, also from the starting days, you had a lot of consultants with really great conceptual skills. Um, on, on the side of Amazon, you had really the operational guys. And it, it felt a bit like uh, eBay, a consultancy uh, business. Uh, whereas with a lot of great PowerPoints and, and um, interesting discussions, whereas at Amazon was much put around getting shit done and about execution. And that was fundamentally different in, in many aspects. If I look at the two companies, eBay and Amazon today, uh, I would say one is very, very successful. I think it's the... It's the most valuable company in the world at the moment. One of them, yeah. Uh, while eBay more or less sucked. Are you saying that consultants can rule companies? <laughs> so I, I think that you need to have uh, both. But it was very clear that if you only discuss high level things, but never um, put things and, and, and discussion into practice, but move on from one topic to another topic, but without executing one of the decisions, um, it, it gets really hard to be successful. Um, and I think that is something that uh, Amazon was um, uh, better as well as, I mean, if you, if you look on uh, the financial profile, eBay was for a long time, uh, cash flow and EBIT positive, was returning money to shareholders, um, and was really cash generating, where Amazon was for a long period of time uh, hardly breaking even, um, always optimizing to be um, around a zero. But um, uh, all, I mean, having a perspective on we invest into the customer and we will, for continuous growth, reinvest money into the business and not returning it to the shareholder. And, and that was also fundamentally different where you could see over the time that if you think about logistics, building up all the, of the logistics network, et cetera, et cetera. So eBay always said the more profitable model for, I mean, absolutely right, is to have a platform only without any that is something that all of the merchants can take care of. Whereas Amazon said, we want to optimize for the consumer and the consumer was seamless and hassle-free uh, delivery. And they heavily invested into that, uh, seeing the long-term vision of, of the customer experience. And I think that fundamental difference, uh, believing in customers, um, set apart Amazon uh, from eBay and made it over time, one being one of the most admired and successful companies nowadays versus one company that is um, uh, declining. And a lot of eBay, ex-eBay colleagues that I work with, I mean, all of them are really proud of uh, the time what they have accomplished and it's great culture and company to be with. Nevertheless, it's, um, it is not set up to win. Um, and that is um, uh, what ultimately makes a great company. At the end, uh, I'm actually using Amazon as an example. I actually have a chart for that in the consultancy where I'm, where I'm presenting that for, I think it's 17 years, Amazon always more or less was at zero profit or even, even having losses. But operatively, of course, they were successful. Of course, they were profitable. But they reinvested everything they earned back into the business. While, as you explained, Uh, at that time, eBay already cashed out. So if you compare that, cashing out too early, not investing enough on the long term, where it brings you. A lot of companies, not only in Germany or in Europe and the US as well, if uh, historic companies that earn money for decades now, they think that will go on forever. I mean, I keep telling that in all the podcasts. There's disruptive competition coming up. Then you need to invest and don't earn out. Don't take the profits. If you don't do that, 
uh, it might kill you. And if you look at eBay today, it's it's nothing compared to Amazon. Yeah, ab absolutely. I think uh, two maybe two things to add. One is, I mean, you cannot change your history, right? And if you have been a profitable company to take away profits from shareholders or from whoever and distribute it back into the business is uh, yeah also a cultural mind shift uh, maybe in within the organization and and secondly another aspect is I think Amazon wouldn't have been as successful if it wouldn't be for Jeff Bezos as a strong founder with a I mean very clear opinion about um, investing into the customer and being customer centric and um, optimizing from the long for the long term not for the short term uh, and i think pierre omida who was the founder of ebay if he would be the same type of character um the the operational guy maybe ebay would have been as successful and and that is maybe also one of the strength of the uh, german economy that we have a lot of founder-led um, companies where the founder is optimizing not for shareholder or for profitability, but more for the long sustainable um, uh, business. Uh, maybe not for the customer. <laughs> this is what, what uh, Germans maybe fail too often in, uh, but at least they, they optimize for um, uh, the company's success. So after that, you switched then to get your guide to a company that, well, went to a unicorn uh, years later. What year did you join Get Your Guide? Uh, I think 2014. In between, I was managing director at Deutsche Post, which was something very diff different. Um, uh, one adventure into the corporate world um, and uh, I realized I'm not made for the German corporate world so I changed back to, to the startup economy. Deutsche Post DHL logistics company that must have been the hardest shift. Yeah so it, it was very different definitely um, and I think you have within the company different cultures and, and different people um, over the course of my career, I must admit that I have learned the most about leadership, uh, positive and negative ways, um, in within Deutsche Post DHL. To be honest, that's the same with me. I learned how to manage and how to to lead in the corporations with Lufthansa and and big BMW Group with big companies. But on the other hand, I created the drive within the startup world. Yeah. So I think in, in that way, there is a benefit. Uh, also, the personalities, I think, um, to me personally, having experienced both sides um, is super valuable. Um, and I think someone have only worked in the corporate world will not succeed in, in a startup and the other way around if he is not able to adjust to one or the other side. Um, so... You learn totally different skill sets in a corporation and you're successful with totally different skills in a corporation than you are in a startup. And I think that's, that's clear. So tell us what, what made you successful uh, within Get Your Guide. So, I mean, uh, I, I started when the company was 70 people and, and uh, I was not the first CFO, but um, I followed a series of CFOs that were not successful and there was a lot of uh, basic work to do. After which round did you enter the company? Mm, at Series B. It was post-Series B. And Get Your Guide was at the status of, you said, 70, 80 people. What, what, what was the product at that time or internationalization? So Get Your Guide was Series B, I think, half a year ago. Um, uh, during Series B, I think they let go some of the people and and uh, focused it. Um, it was also during the time when the headquarters shifted from Zurich to Berlin, um, and it was very early days of uh, the the Berlin office. What does Get Your Guide do in general? Maybe please, please explain for a second. Yeah. So. Get Your Guide is a global tours and activities marketplace. It's a um, platform 
that doesn't offer any um, local tour services, but back at the time um, only connected local tour guides, tour buses, entry tickets, etc., with consumers from everywhere. And the platform Get Your Guide was at the beginning already uh, global and it offered in 2014 20,000 things to do all over the world. And, and in form of revenue, how did they those days uh, earn money? I think revenue for Get Your Guide is only the commission. So there is a volume that is traded over the platform and then there is uh, the portion of it um, that is revenue to get your guide. Is it like a, like a GMV? Yeah, exactly. So if you buy a tour guide for 100 euros, you pay the tour guide 100 euros and then um, get your guide gets a commission of, let's say, 20 euros from the 100 euros that is um, uh, transferred to the tour guide. And how much venture capital came into the company until you entered the uh, get your guide? It was... I, think 50 million US dollars, maybe a bit less. So we're talking about a company value of around maybe 100, 150 million. So I, I cannot comment on that. <laughs> okay. What is, what is clear that it progressed over time. So company value back at the time was still early stage company, not profitable. And the company was measured on growth rather than on profit or anything else. So what did you do to get the high growth, the fast growth of the company? So at the time, um, there was not a clearly defined market. What is actually the tourism activities market space? It was a market where people, people know that if they are traveling, there are tour guides and tour buses. But given that it is local in every in every city, there was no real view on whether that is a, a proper market and to what extent that market exists and can be addressed. So at this very early stage, it was much more about communicating and convincing investors that it is a hundred million market opportunity and that there is a lot of, I mean, business to make if you if the business migrates from offline to online, there are a lot of opportunities within that um, uh, e-commerce or mobile shift that, that is happening across every other industry. If I listen to what you say, the company, it was not clear in those days what the success story will be. What, what were the biggest hurdles uh, in, in those days? I mean, prior to Series C at, at the early, earlier days, it was more really educating investors and, and putting together more and more proof points and, and information and data about why the market can be addressed and is going to move online and why a platform like Get Your Guide is delivering value to customers and to suppliers. And what is the long-term value and, and strategy uh, of such platform? And I think uh, Johannes Tao and... The CEO and, uh, and the founding team, right? And all of the team did very well in articulating a vision of the company that goes far beyond we are just a smaller player, but having a global view and also a view on on uh, a two, three, 10 year, 20 year horizon, how the company can progress over time and how big the company is going to get. How many financing rounds did you do for Get Your Guide? So we did series C, D and E, three, three rounds, but there were a couple of transactions within that round. Um, but in, in general, you would say uh, and classify those rounds as three bigger rounds. And what were the points of the company where the founding team or you all together decided now it's time for the next financing round? Um, so there are a couple of, of points in there. So first, I mean, capital requirements from a company, uh, right? So your cash flow profile as, as the company is not profitable it is, I mean, 
maybe the most important equation in all of that, because once you run out of cash, you don't have any negotiation level. And it is very clear that um, uh, your company is not going to do very well. So uh, most importantly is very early on, make sure that your plan is sufficient to have a period of 12 months, uh, sufficient cash or even longer so that you can operate and, and run a process. Um, the second point in there is um, a timing and, and trajectory. And I mean, ideally you go on a fine fundraise where A, from the investor side, but also B, from a company's trajectory, you come um, to a point where um, you have all all tailwinds together. So investors are keen in a certain segment or for you as a company, as well as your, your uh, company trajectory is currently good and you ideally accelerate growth over that time. And that is something that you can, to some extent, manage even more how your company is performing and how aggressively you grow your company. But that is something where you need to also think about maybe 12, six, month ahead what is for your business and and the seasonality of the, your business the best timing to go on fundraise and to line up investors interest in your company for that timing and think about how the timeline would look like if you try to get money let's say in september what you need to start in january february march how far do you need to get in a commercial due diligence by June? How much time you need for negotiation, etc. So it's it's a it's a project that you need to plan ahead. I would say 18 months ahead, potentially um, like a um, public offering. Okay, so if if in general between the rounds you plan cash that carries you for around one and a half years, I would say. Uh, like 18 months. Um, what brought you to the idea of raising then at the end, as I uh, read it out here, $485 million in the final financing round? That can't be the money that you lose within uh, 18 months. Yeah, so uh, so uh, Series C and, and D were always, uh, even the amounts were smaller. The idea was always the money that we raise is sufficiently to break even the company. Right? So, and and if you I mean uh, execute over time, and you see that the opportunity is bigger, and um, the the networks effect and gains you have is even bigger. Um, the we realize that it makes more sense to double down the investment and to invest more aggressively to build an even bigger company than to fall short of the opportunity and optimize for profitability. If you think, remember the discussion we had versus uh, eBay versus Amazon, I think for, for uh, eBay, there was a point in time to think whether we want to aggress and acquire more companies or aggress, uh, invest in our product or um, to optimize for profitability, start paying um, dividends and, and returning money to shareholders. And I think that was uh, um, partially the discussion whether it makes sense to optimize for profitability or to even more invest into uh, further growth. So it's rather like a bit opportunity driven if there is the demand from venture capital or in general from the capital market, you just take the money because there's enough need and, and, and potential investments there. Yeah, I, th I think it's easy to say there's enough money. So um, investors are um, sufficiently educated and, and um, also have expertise in, in, in uh, several fields. So also investors need to judge whether they believe in the longer term vision of that company or um, uh, do you have a clear plan what to do with the money? All of that is something that investors um, take into consideration when 
they look at your business plan and uh, whereas in the earlier stage it is much more around is there a true business can this company break even and be profitable and what is the ultimate profitability of such a business at the later stage um, it is much more around showing the proof points of the story that you're telling and also delivering upon uh, the promises you, you gave. So that is, um, uh, I mean, if you go beyond Series D, um, at that point in time, you need to have a clear uh, business case and also clear unit economics or any, any way to show that your company will be profitable and how you can accomplish a, pro um, a profitability over time. At the end, there is not too many uh, companies or startups in Europe that raised 500 millions in a financing round with venture capital or later stage private equity. Um, does, does a round like that in, in process, in approach, differ from like classical A, B round financing? Um, so yes and no. So uh, yes, so definitely when it comes to business model, yes, when it comes to the level of diligence that, that is made and also the... the um, uh, a time that gets involved to some extent uh, discussing the company's um, uh, metrics and, and data. So it gets more and more uh, diligent. So what is not different or, or fundamentally different, I think that you always have any kind of shareholder agreement, you have a kind of um, contract, you have a term sheet beforehand and, and the stages you go through and, and the pro project, that is to some extent similar. And, and, and different is on the other hand the, the type of, of investor you approach because you know investments like uh, where one party needs to invest a three-digit million amount of money uh, it's not the same type of, of A-rounds, early stage uh, venture capitalists. So how many, how many companies do you put on the long list and, and how do they differ from a classical A-round, for example? Yeah, so uh, absolutely. So from a, from a company's perspective, uh, I would say <laughs> the challenge is similarly that you need to identify which investors are, uh, have the sweet spot or target basically in your industry, in, in your realm. And if you, you, you need to have an idea what is the money that you want to raise, and most funds for good reasons have certain investment hurdles or in investment thresholds. So if you have a fund of 100 million, uh, you do not want to be over-concentrated in a certain company. So a fund of 100 million will maybe, I mean, uh, 10 is even, even a lot, maybe invest five or a bit more into one company to be not overly exposed on the outcome of only one company. So ideally you have 20 investments to make and, and within those 20 investments, maybe one of two of those investments will return uh, your fund. You think again of the 100 million fund, most likely you invest into 20 companies, which is then 5 million per company, and then you cannot even do second round investments, etc. Right? So the 5 million you put into a company, uh, and, and if you have distributed tw into 20 companies, if the company seeks further fundraise, you basically are done with your fund. And this is why some of the, uh, the bigger uh, VC funds and, and successful funds, uh, they have follow-up funds or have a second fund or what, uh, whatever, where they can basically pro progress their initial investment and back it up with uh, a second and, and a third investment into the company. With this uh, $500 million round, uh, you managed to get an investment from SoftBank. This is uh, almost a year ago by now. SoftBank at that time was like you were awarded if SoftBank invests into your company. Today, I think it's, it's new after WeWork. Uh, it's a bit different view on, on SoftBank. But those days, it was just the best if you could uh, receive an investment from a company that has $100 billion uh, in, in their fund. 
how do you actually get an, an investment from, from SoftBank and, and how, how do you get an appointment? Do you just call them and say, hello, I'd like to have a talk to you? Yeah, so, I mean, Massa is the man and, and there are a couple of other people within, with, within SoftBank. But the, the first question is, at what point and how you attract investors like SoftBank? When I remember correctly, uh, you need to have an investment of at least 100 million upwards. Is that right? Is that like one of the rules from SoftBank? Mm, yeah. So I think 100 or uh, preferably even, even more than 100 million uh, from SoftBank. Uh, which then basically also uh, shows which type of companies they they are aiming for. They look for companies with, I mean, high appetite for investment and a really huge opportunity. In if you invest into a company uh, uh, to that extent, I think you want to be sure that there is sufficient room to grow and to, I mean increase the value of the company uh, over the time. So uh, companies, um, uh, famous investments um, were WeWork, you mentioned, or Uber, um, and a couple of other companies where you have a really, some people would say big bet, or other would say a big vision, where you say this company will create a whole new segment within an industry or will disrupt completely a certain industry um, and change the logic of that industry. Well, that was that was the kingmaker strategy SoftBank followed through uh, those days. Would you say SoftBank was successful with the kingmaker strategy? Well, they, they have been ultimately successful. Um, that is something that the time will show. But um, I think the investments um, uh, and that, that is not only SoftBank, I think SoftBank put it to an extreme, but um, also other investors, um, their investment and the amount of investment is a um, highlight and also uh, a signal to other players in the market, right? And if one company receives a lot of investment, um, most other investors um, ask themselves whether it makes sense to put money into a second company in the same space or if the if the race is decided if one of uh, companies in a certain uh, in a certain segment um, becomes uh, a huge funding and this is where i think the this kind of kingmaker uh, strategy as you called it was already successful in a couple of companies um, and also for get your guide when when they get your guide started was on a on a good path. There was, a, I wouldn't say hundreds, but a lot of other similar companies in that space that were also offering tour services. Some of them, I mean, had operational issues. Some of them uh, were not able to grow as fast. Some of them got acquired over the time. And I think with the amount um, of investment that was received by KKR and Battery Ventures, also other investors, um, uh, then thought about, hey, is it huh, wise and smart to invest into a direct competitor and compete on on the capital, etc., or uh, will I put my money into a different uh, sector? So you you still say, on the one hand, it's a threat against the competition to have that amount of money in in one startup, and on the other hand, of course. You got uh, that amount of cash, so you can in, in get your guide, for example, buy end customers away before other one, other competitors get them, right? Yeah, whether it's competitors, product development, hiring, uh, whatever it is, but it's very clear that with uh, sufficient money in the bank, um, you have a <laughs> you have an edge over your competition, and if all of the other companies only received. 10 millions and one company received 100 of million, it is very clear that the, the uh, company that received more money has at least more resources to do, to do better. Of course, at the end, it only works if that uh, business sector that you invest in is successful at the end. This is where we come back to the WeWork uh, example. That didn't work out, right? Yeah, so I... I don't know a lot about WeWork and from the 
outside it doesn't look like being one of the smartest investments um but it it is still called venture capital and people need to take some risk um, in investing in it um, and you have successes and failures and i think um, it's part of the game i wouldn't judge softbanks for example only on the WeWork investment um, and whether they are ultimately successful or not is only something that will prove over time their investment into uber was so much discussed um, uh, back in the time whether that was ultimately successful or not i think only only softbank will know that um, whether they return money on that investment or not of course only time will tell and i don't want to pick one maybe not so good running example out and say uh, because of that the investment company is not good of course that's not the, not at all the case in venture capital it's rather eight are bad but if you got the one or two unicorns being the, the the global leader in one space you can easily pay for the eight fails so that uh, that strategy works for venture capital in general and of course for softbank as well I mean, you had an insight into SoftBank. Tell us a bit about what persons are working there. Is it is it all Japanese uh, uh, investment managers there? No. So um, a <laughs> SoftBank in itself is an, is a big enough organization that is evolving over time. And then I touch points with the team in uh, on the west coast. Um, but there are several teams even within SoftBank, and and that is progressing over time. Um, and uh, most of the people that I met were either uh, former Deutsche Bank uh, investment uh, banking type of persons or um, people from uh, any kind of startup background experience um, on, and even some people fresh from the university. Okay. If, if we come back to the financing round of 500 million of that size, would you say uh, it, it takes more or less the same uh, time to, to raise 500 million uh, like compared to an A or B round? No, no. So, I, I mean, to really answer that question, I would need to have experience in doing 20 E rounds, right? Which I think uh, very, very few people have. The company has much more history. People invest more into, I mean, uh, the substance of the company, whether than in A or B in in the idea. And and thirdly, and not lastly, the more and and uh, older the company gets, the more shareholders you you will have that are not only investing but also selling, right? So um, usually in in those um, in those later stage processes, you have also a part which is called secondaries, where um, uh, existing investors want to sell some of their shares. So some of the investment not does not go completely to the company, but also gets distributed to shareholders where just um, uh, shares from one investor moves to uh, the new investor. So so how, how many months did it take all in all? Um, so we had Series D, which was 75 million. Uh, that was record fast. That was within opening the um, commercial data room up to closing that deal a period of I think 10 weeks but that is only because we made it super competitive it was well prepared there was I mean huge interest great trajectory of the company um, everything was I mean well prepared so I think that was that was an excellent one in in series D whereas in series E It get, got much more complicated because there was a part of existing shareholders that wanted to sell. There were different kind of, I mean, needs, uh, etc. And the round and and how how we, I mean, uh, structured the round 
um, if you have SoftBank as a super aggressive, um, uh, very uh, potential investor on one side, it's really hard to find competing or alternative investors that can that you can leverage in a in a and and competitive process in in conjunction with SoftBank. So if there would be a second second SoftBank, you can basically play those twos. But there is only one 100 billion fund, and it is very clear that this fund invests in in an amount that no other fund is currently doing. So having a having a process um, uh, constructed is really tricky. Of course, I mean, if you got the biggest investor behind you, what comes behind uh, after SoftBank? Nothing or just an IPO. I can uh, absolutely understand that. And of course, if you add complexity to the deal, you know, partly having secondaries and selling, selling shares in parallel, of course, the deal gets more complex and then the, the timeline is different. But in general, I don't see big, huge differences. So you just add a zero more or less. So you don't add 50, but 500 million. <laughs> this is how, how I understand it. Yeah, yeah. So to some extent, yes. Um, but I think the the more money gets to uh, gets on the table, the more diligent usually good investors are, right? Um, and uh, I would say uh, it is easy to invest if you have distributed uh, among the twenty companies some money and take some risk. As you know, there is a lot of things that are still going to change and evolve over the time of, uh, of the company. Nevertheless, if you have a already quite mature business, then you want to make sure that you do not have any, I mean, easy flaws or uh, significant uh, risks within your investment um, that, um, I mean, exposes you to a a foolish investment. Okay, and then what astonished me most is after that round, you know, 500 million getting into the company, that gives you loads of opportunities and huge things you can do. And then you left the company. Please tell us why. Mm -hmm. So um, it is very true. And, and all the opportunities that are discussed during the process, it's not that you, I mean, get the money into the bank account and then uh, think, start thinking about what you're going to do. It is already already part of um, uh, of the investment, right? Um, so, and at that money and valuation, as you said, is very likely to be an initial public offering, and uh, with the money um, that is invested there, it is very likely to be um, uh, in the U.S. and uh, potentially not in Germany. Um, so. That was also for me a, a decision to make whether I want to progress in that company and taking the route to uh, to the stock market or to do something differently. Whereas I realized for the longer term, I think my my strength are in different areas, and um, it's more likely to be successful with. A similar environment that was get your guide in in the years 2014 to 17 or 18 rather than to be successful within the company uh, of the year 2019 to 2025 20, uh, and the funky thing is that you left the company then i think uh, end of 2019 before corona and three months later the corona pandemic hit uh, the globe so at the end, you did everything right, right? Yeah. So, I mean, retrospectively, nevertheless, no one knew that Corona is coming or whatever. And it could have been also the other way around. Um, and the company is doing well. Actually, I feel very sorry for all the colleagues uh, because, um, I mean, get your guide, travel industry in total or travel hospitality, etc., all of them are hit very hard um, and and I wish that they would do better. Um, nevertheless, there, there is a lot of luck. And 
um, whether it it is uh, the corona pandemic or for example when in series c we signed at the date where the bacala terra test in in paris was or at deutsche post um, the ceo told that uh, the postbank deal was done only because a woman um, who was uh, running the deal uh, was uh, going on maternity leave and she need to do the deal at the last day uh, when she leaves so there are a lot of i mean luck involved um, also i heard the story of company going uh, wanted to go uh, to the public market and then financial crash come so there there are some things that you i mean can change are in in your control and some things that are purely luck and uh, i mean uh, i'm i'm humbled enough to say um, I had decent uh, luck in my life to take some of the decisions that turned out to be uh, good and the right ones, um, but there could have been also bad luck. Um, it could have been that PayPal is not going to be successful. It could have been that Amazon failed to compete to, uh, to eBay or uh, Audible um, uh, wouldn't be successful. Uh, get your guide might have been uh, uh, bust in 2015 all of that i think that that are things that i was on the on the lucky side um and and uh, something to be uh, still humbled and proud of being part of that but acknowledging that there is a decent amount of luck that you need to have to be really super successful good to hear that because a lot of Times I think when when young founders uh, are being successful, they really think they they know everything, uh, and and a lot of times there's a lot of luck involved as well. So being humble is is something we should all keep in mind as well when when being uh, entrepreneurs and and founding companies. You, you describe how many industries are got hit by SARS virus. Um, how do you see the status today and and the outlook for 2021 and 2022? I think fundamentally, um, if the travel industry will go back to volumes um, as it was in 2018-19, where travel was growing 10% year over year, um, and whether we reach that limit within the next three years or not, hard to tell. I wish it would be so. It is hard to imagine, even if you think about the Vekinen and and um, other factors coming into play. Um, I think there will be changes um, uh, in the future that will significantly impact at least business travel, at least the way how we operate in offices, as well as a lot of companies, I think, will not make the time between now and the next 24 months, if you think about all of the uh, governmental support that is given within the next, uh, next six to 12 months, and there were already companies that were not doing well, I think that ha might have prolonged the time to file for insolvency, uh, etc. But there it is very likely that there will be any kind of shakeout coming up in the next uh, i think 12 to 18 months hmm. so we need to come to an end already too bad but let's uh, have as a last topic the one i teased it in the beginning that you just signed a new contract as cfo for a new company which company is it yeah so um, I'm going to join Chronex. Chronex is uh, currently the biggest online retailer of uh, luxury watches who does pre-owned, so um, uh, used watches or uh, watches that uh, were owned by someone before, as well as uh, new watches. So if you've tried in these days to buy a luxury watch, you will find out that all of the uh, Rolex, for example, uh, retailers are sold out and have waiting lists for new watches for uh, up to uh, two to three years if you want to um, get a certain certain type of watch. Are they in Europe or, or the US or where are they mainly? It's a 
a Swiss company mainly active in the, in the German-Swiss area. And you'll join as CFO and mainly raise money then for them in financing rounds? We'll, we'll see what's the next step. When will you start? Uh, December. All right. Then all the best to you for that step or in general for all the steps afterwards. Thank you very much, Joseph, for the podcast. Patrick, always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. Bye-bye.